they see themselves now as Ukrainians and they're very proud of it. Um, in the like in previous generations, I don't know that this was the case. So they have they have the responsibility to kind of get their country running and going, like further solidify their democracy and promote further integration with Europe. You're listening to the Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Welcome to Slavic Connection. This is your host, Lauren Nyquist, and I'm with Austin Saffington. I'm super excited. He's a senior in the International Relations Department, um, and I'll introduce you briefly and then add on anything that you possibly want. So I met Austin through the our International Relations, our 320F here at UT, um, and Austin is a Czech-American, um, which is how he got interested in um, kind of Eastern Europe um, and kind of that entire region. Um, he, this last year, he volunteered in Poland and the Czech Republic, um, where he met uh, Ukrainians, um, where in, and when he first heard about their perspectives um, on Russia and what's happening in Ukraine. Um, and then right now, he's participating in an internship with European Values Think Tank um, and the Kremlin Watch program. So I'm super excited to have you here. You're our first real undergrad interviewee, and I think your perspective is going to be great. So is there anything you want to add to your bio? Um, I think that was a good bio that pretty much covered everything. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> I'm so happy. Um, so I guess let's start out with how your identity as a Czech American has really shaped your passion in the region. Have you always been passionate about your Czech background um, or is that something that happened recently? Um, it didn't really happen until I went there this summer and kind of connected with my roots, met some um, distant family and volunteered However, my family does have an interesting story, um, kind of like and why they came to America. They came to America around the time of World War One, and um, they felt a strong sense of solidarity with the Russians as like another Slavic ethnic group. In fact, the reason why I think my great grandparents or maybe great great grandparents why they immigrated to America um, was because like they didn't want to fight for the Austrian-Hungarian Empire during World War One, so they wanted to fight for the Russians and they couldn't. So that's why they came to Texas. Yeah. Okay. There's a huge Czech population here in Texas, if I'm correct, yes. right? So do you still identify with that community here or has your family kind of become separated from the Czech community? With, with the Czech community here. Yeah. That's amazing. Awesome. And I think you were part of, you were actually in the Czech conversation hour earlier today, yes. right? Okay. I heard someone talking about <laughs> that earlier. So how has that identity here at UT, like, helped you focus on where you're researching or what you're studying? Um, that's a good question. I, I, I think, <laughs> I think a lot of it just kind of, I think coming here, it was very different than like, um, like the home, like my hometown and like the environment where I was raised. Um, I think both because of the small town atmosphere as well as like Czech American undertones and um, this, like, you know, it was very hard for me to, like, find my place at UT. And I kind of, like, didn't, like, know. I didn't really know who I was. Mm -hmm. However, after going to the Czech Republic in Poland this summer, that's, like, I feel like I really discovered myself. And, like, I, like, felt a strong connection to Central and Eastern Europe. And that's where I got really interested in, um, particularly after meeting um, my Ukrainian friends from the Donbass region and um, the just the environment of Ukraine and um, Russian hostility in the region. Yeah. So we met through IRG, I think IRG 320F, which is kind of, um, 
I guess the level up from like the basic intro course. So when coming in, did, how did you choose to be involved in kind of international relations? And then what is your track in international relations? So my track is international security. And it's actually an interesting story because I did not start with, um, IRG or international relations. Um, it's something I really wanted to do. However, I didn't know for sure. I want, my parents told me to do communication because they thought it was more practical. Mm-hmm. Um, just because like they didn't really understand what, you know, all the opportunities IRG offered. However, I started doing the communication degree and after one class, I realized it wasn't for me and I switched to IRG and decided that security was the track for me because I'm very interested in geopolitics and, um, intelligence, um, counterterrorism as well. Yeah, which is how I've kind of all of our conversations that we've had, because we've had conversations in Capstone recently, even just about the security of Eastern Europe. And you bring an interesting perspective. We've got a cool group in that Mm -hmm. class that kind of brings the different perspectives of Eastern Europe. So we have really good conversations and discussions. Um, But I think it's interesting to kind of talk about the greater security of that perspective. So if you want to go in and kind of I know you wanted to touch on this, but how you met your Ukrainian friends and then we can go into talking about more security aspect of mm-hmm. Eastern Europe. But um, how did you go about, what were you doing, and I guess in the Czech Republic and in Poland, and then how did you meet your Ukrainian friends and get to learn about Ukraine? Well, I was, organ- I was uh, volunteering to this organization called ISIC. Um, well, they, ISIC acted as a third party, and I was volunteering with an organization called Angloville, where I taught high school-aged kids um, English. Pretty much I just spoke to them in English because they already knew it. And some of the other volunteers were Ukrainian. And um, one of them was from the Donbass region. And we became, we kind of established a connection very early on and became very, very close friends. And um, it was very interesting learning about her perspective because I, I didn't, like, I minored in Middle East studies. I did not minor in Eastern European studies. So, like, I thought, like, sh- since she was from the Donbass region, she must, you know, be pro-Russian. Mm-hmm. She must not really like Ukraine because, from what I understood, they're mostly Russian speakers who, and that's where all the insurgency was happening. So I just saw all of them wanted to um, join Russia. However, I was so wrong. She told me, she was like, don't call me Russian. I'm Ukrainian. Like, my native language is Russian, but, like, my heart is Ukrainian. Like, I care about this country, and I do not like what Russia is doing in my area. Because, I mean, they're very, like her village she grew up in is very close to the fighting. It's, I don't know how, I don't know the exact distance, but it's close. In fact, her friend told me that, like, the only reason the Russians haven't really advanced towards it is because there's a chemical plant in the village and <laughs> they're, they're scared they're going to mess it up and it's going to blow up and make a big mess. <laughs> That's interesting. I just wrote a piece for Mosser's, Dr. Mosser, who's our capstone professor's um, environmental politics class about kind of these unchecked like power plants that have gone unmonitored because of the conflict, because no one <coughs> will go and check in on these power plants or we there are a series of chemicals that were being monitored in that region that have now gone. So it's interesting that that's now I'm seeing it full circle. Um, so I guess in security and talking about Russian aggression going into the Donbass and then also the Czech, because Czech is in that region. So mm-hmm. we're seeing greater and greater Russian disinformation campaigns. We're seeing Russia utilize news and utilize um, media to spread information. We've seen it here in the United States, um, but also in Eastern Europe. So I guess what is your perspective on this um, and how do you think it's going to shape kind of Eastern Europe? 
going forward? Well, my perspective is it's very, very important because my academic research has indicated that this region, particularly Central Europe, so Czech Republic, Poland, Slovakia, even Austria, like Hungary as well, they're serving as a testing lab, you could say, for what for Russians to tweak their information operations as well as like exportation of values um, to tweak them before they kind of do this further west. I mean, they're already doing things further west and like, you know, Germany, even in America. We saw this in Texas with the um, Heart of Texas protest in um, Houston, Texas, mm-hmm. um, where they actually were able to organize a conservative Muslim group as well as a far right American group to protest at the exact same spot at the exact same time. And you, as you can imagine, that did not go over well. Um, we're seeing it here. However, like Eastern Europe, Central Europe, it's a testing lab for operations further abroad. Yeah. Um, so I guess it, we're seeing that as a greater thing. How do you think that there is a way for us to counter that? Or how do you think Eastern European countries should be addressing these campaigns by Russia? I think it's it, there are many ways and it's kind of like there isn't one singular like, there isn't one single answer. It's kind of on a country by country basis. Like, for example, in the Czech Republic, the Russian influences ha- hasn't been as strong as in, say, Hungary. So like in the Czech Republic, I think the best way to counter it is just to have news sources that advertise themselves also, like as the Russian biased news sources do, as alternative media sources. However, these news sources should serve as like educational ones that um, counter Russian disinformation. Um, in other countries such as Hungary, I, I don't know, like it's, it's going to take I think potentially with this generation, um, our generation, as they've seen kind of what's happened in the country, how Orban and his administration, Viktor Orban, have utilized the um, refugee crisis to kind of create an upsurge in nationalism in Hungary and how they're able to link themselves to Russia due to their desire to have an illiberal model of democracy, as we see in Russia. I think that is very ingrained like with the current time period. However, as other millennials, you know, continue to get older, I think they might be able to take their country back. Okay. So you kind of mentioned the generation and then an institutionalized government. So I kind of want to touch on that because we were briefly talking about that earlier is kind of the, I guess, the main three who are going forward in Ukraine, but also looking at the greater movement of all of the countries in Eastern Europe, be it the Czech Republic, Poland, I know is a huge one where you're seeing kind of this rallying of a far right anti-immigrant kind of governmental movement. Um, How important do you think it is for the youth to um, be participating in government right now? And what responsibility do you think our our generation has in shaping the future? Um, Because we talked earlier about people we know who aren't going to be voting in Ukraine Mm -hmm. particularly, but do you think that we have a responsibility to kind of shape that? Absolutely, Um, particularly in Ukraine. Um, The youth of this country, I think, have they see themselves now as Ukrainians and they're very proud of it. Um, and the like, previous generations, I don't know that this was the case. So they have, they have the responsibility to kind of get their country running and going, like um, further solidify their democracy and promote further integration with Europe. Yeah. Um, and they, because once Ukraine drifts further away from Russia, Russia 
as I've heard say, like Russia with Ukraine is an empire, Russia without Ukraine, it's just Russia. And these youth could potentially even serve as an example for Russian youth. Because I know in Russia, I mean, I don't know too much about it, but I, I, I'm sure many of the youth there have their reservations with the Putin regime. Yeah, I feel and I see this with our own generation here in the United States. And this is why I'm so into interviewing you, who's an undergrad um, and not necessarily an established academic. Um, but we are kind of that generation that's been disenfranchised by kind of the government or we a, a lot of those in our generation feel that way. Um, and so we're making this move. So we're seeing this kind of greater movement, not only here in the United States where we actually have the freedom to move, but we're seeing it in these harder places like in Ukraine and hopefully maybe in Russia in the future. I know some of my friends um, <coughs> abroad um, in Russia were concerned about the way things are going and participated in protests. So to have kind of discussions, that's why I'm so excited to be talking with someone like you is because we're going to be the ones to kind of lead that move forward. Um, so I guess I want to talk about what you, what you are doing more specifically with your internship. So what are you covering um, through your internship and what specifically are you looking at? Um, I primarily primarily examine um, Russian influence in the EU. Um, previously, I've um, covered um, kind of like their, I've examined Russian disinformation in um, Central and Eastern European countries like Czech Republic, Poland, Hungary, Slovenia. Um, now I'm starting, however, to examine Russian economic warfare, such as the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, um, its implications on Ukrainian energy security or on European energy energy security and Ukrainian um, economic well-being. Wow. <laughs> That's interesting. So I guess I want to split those and go with kind of like Russian uh, information and EU first. So what were kind of the trends that you saw? Was there anything that surprised you that you wish more people knew about? Or um, I guess what were you looking at specifically within that? Well, um, a variety of things. Um one thing that just came to mind um, that was very surprising to me is my um, um, my think tank partner with another think tank, with a think tank I'm interning with, partner with another European think tank, the Globsec think tank based in uh, Bratislava, Slovakia. And they did a survey um, about kind of how the youth and Central Europe perceive themselves. What was very shocking to me is like Polish youth, are, they very much want to identify with a Eastern um, non-EU um, identity today. And I was very surprised. Like, I thought, you know, like, their government, I understand their government is very right-wing and it's kind of wanting to distance itself from um, kind of the EU and, like, mainstream European politics. However, I assume the youth would be, you know, as the youth are in other countries, you know, progressive and um, modern-leaning. However, this was very, very surprising. That's... So we've actually heard that discourse through our own research um, through this project. And I think that's fascinating because when asked about the EU and kind of, do you think Ukraine should join the EU? Our general consensus is Ukraine needs to be strong for itself before that it should join an organization because they see, I guess they disassociate sovereignty when you're part of like something like the EU. So I find that very interesting. And if it, I wonder if it's going to become like a greater trend. <laughs> it's interesting to kind of get like a broader, like Eastern European perspective because as a whole, it's a, it has a much more conjoined history, especially mm -hmm. Poland and Ukraine. Um, 
So uh, economically, so we've actually briefly talked about this earlier. It's kind of European or, or Ukrainian um, in energy kind of security. Um, do you think that there is a current threat towards Ukraine's energy sector or? Absolutely. Um, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, if it passes, thankfully now it's looking like it is not going to pass. Um, if you're not familiar with the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, it is a pipeline that um, German businessmen want to be built through the Baltic Sea, which transports Russian uh, natural um, um, fossil fuels directly to Germany, um, bypassing Ukraine. Um, there's another pipeline that um, I think has already been started that will go through Turkey. However, I, I'm not entirely sure, but I don't think it goes, I don't think it goes beyond Turkey yet at this point. But these two pipelines, if they go through, directly affect Ukrainian energy security because that is one of the things Ukraine has going for them is like they're like a transit country for um, energy going to Europe from Russia. Um, if it bypasses, if these pipelines bypass Ukraine, they lose that economic um, strength yeah. and the ec economy is already struggling. Um, there is some corruption. Yeah. And there's lots of hostile Russian influence. So this would just kind of be another stab in the back if these pipelines are built. A further limiting factor. It's interesting to hear all of these different things, which just further perpetuate a reliance of like Ukraine on Russia. Um, so I'm interested in kind of getting your perspective on Crimea um, and I guess the Donbass region. So the Donbass I see is kind of a possible future Crimea situation with the possibility of being taken completely by Russia. So you had a friend who was from the Donbass, and I'm interested in knowing if you heard anything or what your own personal perspectives was, as this was a direct uh, Russian kind of threat towards Ukrainian sovereignty. Well, I think it's possible. However, I really hope it will not happen. Um, recently, there was an interesting article that came out that talked about how a um, a separatist fighter in eastern Ukraine deserted the Russian and separatist side and joined the Ukrainian side for love, apparently. And she is warning of a looming Russian invasion to the Donbass region and Ukraine as a whole. However, it's disputed how factual her account is. Um, it is very possible, though. I mean, this current... I think it's kind of at a state. I don't, it's not a frozen conflict, but I don't really see either side making any progress in the region. So I could definitely see Putin's administration decide they want to have a full scale invasion of the area and incorporate into Russia using the pretext that, um, the, um, Ukrainians in the car in Kharkiv and the, um, in Luhansk. Mm -hmm. Is it Kharkiv or is it? Uh, so the two main cities are Donetsk and Luhansk when talking about the Donbass, but Kharkiv is kind of over in that area. Yes, I said the wrong. Um, Donetsk and Luhansk, like those two cities we've seen, um, they've seen insurgency. However, like um, the region as a whole is like very complicated, the Donbass region. Like, you know, Luhansk and um, Donetsk, they kind of, um, like, I feel like, from what I understand, like, their population was always always very Russian, yeah. whereas the rest of the area was more Ukrainian. Yeah. So, um, using, like, their, those cities as a pretext, Russia might launch an invasion into the region and take the whole region um, at the expense of the population there that wants to remain part of Ukraine. 
Do you think that if further action is taken in Ukraine, that it could threaten other sovereign countries like the Czech Republic, like Poland, or the smaller? I think the smaller would probably go first. I mean, we have Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, um, who are all right there. Do you think that an action taken further in Ukraine will be a further threat to those sovereign nations? Yes, absolutely. I think... I think... If Russia like invades Ukraine and furthers their operations there, this indicates they're willing to do it in these countries, and it threatens the whole region as a whole. It'll be more complicated because, of course, these countries are NATO countries, like because yeah. you know NATO countries are agreed to go to the defense of each other in the case of an invasion. Um, however, it it does indicate they are willing to do this. I'm interested in kind of going a little bit into that is so we had a conversation in Capstone. I know we would say Capstone was a different, but it kind of brings up the topic of right to protect, because when we were talking about right to protect, Dr. Mosser kind of insinuated that one of us would have brought up the conflict and then Donbass. However, I think we all kind of accepted that that's just kind of a conflict that's happening. However, do you think that because Further aggression in Ukraine could threaten our NATO allies. We should be taking direct action in Ukraine and Eastern Europe, or should the United States stay out of it? That's a good question. Can I like have a minute to process the question? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was a very loaded question. I've been thinking about it for a while. Um, well, it's very – the whole right to protect – idea is very complicated. Like the responsibility whole pol- to protect, yeah. Responsibility to protect. I the kept whole- saying that wrong. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, like the whole, um, this, this whole idea is very complicated because um, whereas like, you know, we, you could say we do the responsibility as more powerful countries. My question is, if we do intervene in the region, will we be able to benefit, like, will we actually be able to change the course of what's yeah. going on? Yeah. Will we actually be able to help at this point right now? In the case of like a full-scale Russian invasion of Donbass and Ukraine, I absolutely do think that we need to intervene, yeah. um, like NATO and the U.S. However, as of right now, I'm not sure. I, I don't think we should yeah. because I just – I don't think much is being accomplished right now mm-hmm. anyway. So like only if it escalates further, like do we need to utilize the responsibility to protect yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, that is a definitely difficult issue. And I think we talked about it like in classes, our responsibility, responsibility to protect is such a difficult issue to do. Um, but it gets so complicated, especially with Ukraine. When we give them, we have huge weapons deals um, mm-hmm. with Ukraine and we consider them an ally. So um, I, it's always hard when one of our, the members in our focus group says, <coughs> What is what is the United States going to do about Ukraine? And I'm like, I have, I have no idea. I have no idea, like, no option for you. So, um, I guess we can talk more about. I'm interested to know where you see the future of democracy in Eastern Europe. So, because you were in Poland, and Poland is kind of moving further and further away from. Yes. Um, well. It's kind of a country-by-country basis, but Poland, it is at high risk. However, there is a rather strong um, leftist movement against the um, the current administration. Mm-hmm. Um, it's primarily based in Western Poland, and um, they are very vocal 
Um, it remains to be seen kind of like what is going to happen if they're going to ma- remain vocal mm-hmm. or if it's going to kind of become like hungry, which is for the time being, I hate to say it, almost a lost cause. Like it's yeah. very, they've really embraced this illiberal democracy idea. Um, in Ukraine, I do think there is hope. Um, it might not come with this election. It might not come with the next election, but eventually like with like, as this generation comes of age, as millennials come of age, I do think the demand for democracy is there. The demand for more transparency is there. And eventually we'll see these hopes come to um, fruition. Yeah. I think that's, that's probably the most optimistic I've heard. (laughs) (laughs) But as of right now, like I don't, like I'm not very optimistic for right now. Right now, I don't know with this election. I don't know. We're not going to see democracy anytime soon. I don't think a full (laughs) democracy there anytime soon without the corruption. Do you think, so you said it, you kind of specified it as being a country to country basis. Do you think that the, so Hungary is, I guess, not necessarily affecting the entire region right now. Um, but do you think it can be kind of seen as a contagious disease where it's going to spread as like, if we get more into the spread of far right or the use of fear mongering or Russia's disinformation campaigns, do you think we could see this spread? Yes, I, I do think it can potentially spread. Um, it's like, it's much more complicated than like the whole idea of the domino effect, like yeah. during the communist, um, you know, during the cold war. However, um, I think particularly in countries like Hungary and Poland, like where like there's this idea that they've like lost, they've lost their kingdom, they've lost their empire and control of like surrounding regions. I think it is very, a very high risk there because, um, um, opportunist politicians are able to use this underlying mentality as well as this idea circulating that they've been dealt an unfair hand by the West mm-hmm. to their advantage and increase their, um, hold on power. Yeah. Um, in other nations such as Czech Republic and Slovakia, um, it's a bit more complicated. I think it moves much, much more slowly. However, there in like, you know, throughout, throughout the region, um, you know, in Romania, Bulgaria, even Slovenia, like there is just this idea that like the EU isn't fair to these countries because like they don't have enough voice and like they don't understand that like they don't understand their culture identity. Mm-hmm. Um, and this idea is very dangerous, like because like opportunist politicians and Russian, the Russian disinformation machine can utilize this to achieve the objective of dividing the region and, um, and you know, um, starting an increase in nationalism. Yeah. And I can see that. And I think what's so interesting is we've kind of seen, I'm thinking back to when we had the Texas national security forum and cause we're seeing action deliberately taken by Russia to support this, this like general like movement and these like discourse. Um, and however, what I thought was interesting at that, and you were sitting close to me for at least part of it, was this kind of this discussion by these older, more like wizened, I guess, like national security ep- like experts who are saying, oh, Russia's a declining power. We don't need to consider <coughs> them whatsoever. We don't need to like bother. We don't need to like think about them as like a hegemonic power anymore because they're dying. They're like a dying country. However, what I think is interesting is cyber war, like cyber warfare and disinformation campaigns have kind of evened the playing ground. Um, do you think that we should discredit Russia as being a hegemonic hegemonic power or do you think that they're just as powerful except like specifically in their influence in central Asia and in Eastern Europe? 
I think they're just as powerful, just in a different way. Um, obviously, like they're not as powerful as China or the U.S. today. Mm-hmm. Um, however, the the very fact that like they are not powerful anymore has what is what led to the creation of their disinformation campaigns. So that is the primary risk. Like they're utilizing the disinformation campaigns as well as economic warfare to make themselves seem strong, mm-hmm. to in- increase their confidence at home that they are willpower and make Europe, for lack of a better word, so aggravated with them that like they kind of recognize them as a major power because they're continuously threatening them with their propaganda and um, economic initiatives. Um, I do not think that Russia needs to be discredited, though, as a declining power. It definitely is not. It might not have the military capabilities it once had. However, it has its inform its propaganda capabilities, its covert capabilities. If anything, have increased substantially since. I mean, with, with the rise of technology and social media over the past um, generation. Okay. Um, so is there anything I want to end this kind of talking about what you wish people, cause I don't think a lot of people can even place the Czech Republic on a map. So I want to end kind of with you, um, I guess get, letting me know something that I may not know about the Czech Republic that we can share with more to get them interested in why they should care about the Czech Republic. But besides, before we end on that, is there anything else you want to add? Um, no, I think we covered the subject pretty good. <laughs> pretty well. Yeah, this has been awesome. So what can you share with me about the Czech Republic or with the listeners? Um, well, first of all, we're not Chechnya. <laughs> I've got, Is that a thing? Yes. <laughs> I've got someone ask me if I was Chechen before. I'm like, no, I'm Czech. Like, I'm like over here by Germany. And That's like, pretty rough. By Poland, not over in the, um, not over here, like in like Central Asia. But um, I think... Something something I really feel is that we are a Slavic country. Mm-hmm. However, I perceive us as being in Central Europe. Yeah. Um, we don't have the Russian influence that Ukraine and Belarus have, and even to a degree, Poland. Um, we are always very much dominated like by like German Germanic powers um, or under Germanic influence. So we have we're we definitely in more of the Central European mentality. Um, however, we are a Slavic nation, and. Um, I, I, I kind of perceive us like as like a Slavic nation that sets an example for other Slavic nations, <laughs> not Russia. Russia is not a good example. <laughs> I think that's going to be super important going forward, because I think if we can, as I mean, this is kind of the hope is if we move further away from Russia, Eastern European nations need a role model. And while, of course, I hope that Ukraine can be that role model, especially with this election, they need an economic role model. And I think the Czech Republic, it'll be a great place for Eastern Europe to kind of look to kind of as we progress forward. I agree. Um, the economics is a little bit different because Czech Republic is a small country. Ukraine is yeah. very big. However, the political model and the mentality, I think, is a good role model. And um, the Czechs in the past, like, actually during the interwar period and before, like while, while they're under the Austro-Hungarian Empire, um, they pretty much created like this idea like um, that like, like like they pretty much helped other Slavic nations gain their independence. So um, I'm very proud of that. And, like I'm very proud of the fact like, that we've always like kind of like served as a role model for other nations trying to gain their independence in the region. That's awesome. Thank you so much again for coming and talking with me and being on this podcast. Um, do you know how to say goodbye in, in Czech? Yes. Nasteranu. I don't know if I can say that. Nasteranu. <laughs> You're close. <laughs> I'm close. Well, thank you guys for listening. This has been the Slavic Connection. Um, and we look forward to having you guys listen again.
The views, opinions, and ideas expressed on this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the show or the University of Texas. Thank you for listening to the Slavic Connection. Please visit SlavXRadio.com for more information and to subscribe to our podcast and YouTube channel. As always, we invite listener feedback, so please send us your comments. The Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you.